Well, we've sure had a very interesting start to the 2018 World Cup with penalties galore, a long wait for a red card and wait, an England win? After a taxing day for the Portugal star, Ronaldo outscored Messi by three goals to none on match day one. Reigning champions Germany left Moscow saying, uh-oh, Lozano, and rumours are that Neymar is still looking over his shoulder in the hope that he's escaped the attentions of Valon Barami. In this episode, we'll be recapping all the action from the opening round of group games played in Russia with the assistance of today's video referees, complete with full kit, Duncan Alexander. Hi, Matt. And making his debut on the podcast, Opta Pro Man Tom Reynolds. Hi, all. Dunk, have you enjoyed the World Cup so far? Uh, very much so, yeah. I think it's been really good. I think the um, the games have been good. There's been some good performances. There's been a, just the right amount of shocks. You know, you didn't want too many shocks, but you want a few. Um, England got off to a good start. I mean, pretty much ticked all the boxes. And Tom, how, how has it been in the world of Opta Pro? Yeah, busy, very busy. So obviously, season come to an end. Got a World Cup now. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's going well. Good very stuff. interesting. So you may have heard of Opta Joe, but you might not be so aware of the world of Opta Pro. Um, Tom works in that uh, part of the company. So Tom, can you sort of explain about what Opta Pro do? Yeah, so we work in obviously the football world, whereas you guys work mainly in the media. We work with the professional clubs. Um, we help with the day-to-day -day running, um, have a few products from Opta Pro that, we, that clubs buy from us um, uh, with the data. Um, obviously, we've bought Scout7, um, a scouting company and video company based in Birmingham. So now with the acquisition, everything's coming together. Um, obviously, we, we do a podcast ourselves right at the back. If you haven't listened to that, make sure make sure you give that a listen. So that's, is that more, that's an analytical podcast? Yeah, yeah. So it? it's mainly done by Ryan and um, head of Optopro, Ben McCreel. Um and they normally have a special guest on it each week as well. So, so during the World Cup, is it a bit of a downtime for you because clubs aren't, they're probably doing a lot of work behind the scenes more so? Or? Uh, clubs, yet, yeah, but we work with federations too. So obviously um, trying to help them out with um, opposition analysis and uh, pre-match scouting, and it's it's pretty it's still busy. Penalty analysis ahead of shootouts yeah, as well. Yeah, very much so. So yeah, if you see a goalkeeper save a penalty in a shootout and look like they're looking at a piece of paper, the chances are that might have come from your guys. Rumours are Tim Krull may have come from our guys <laughs> as well. Brilliant. Well, you created Tim Krull. We did create Tim Krull. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Just for that shootout, it, he wasn't the real Tim Krull. It was actually science has gone too far. <laughs> Cool, so as with every episode, Duncan has sat in his perfectly air-conditioned room and prepared a teaser question for you all. As usual, he'll be revealing the answer to that question at the end of the show. So Duncan, hit the public with that question. Okay, so we've seen some good goals so far, but we've also seen some good fouls. You know, Neymar was targeted in the Switzerland game. But that made me look and think about the uh, the best, possibly the best game ever in terms of fouls in World Cup history, which remains Mexico v Paraguay from 1986. Now, this game has the most number of fouls of any World Cup match ever. How many? Whew. So that's even more than the World Cup final in 2010. Yeah. It was a, a slight surprise for many people as that was brutal. They were of a higher quality, I think. Oh, yeah. this, was, this was quantity, not quality. So like the X... F, like the XG of fouls. Yeah, it was an English referee in, in this Mexico game as well. So he um he looked flustered, A, by the heat, <laughs> B, by the altitude, and C, by the sheer ferocity and number of fouls.
Right, so in this podcast, we're going to review the first round of uh, the group stage at Russia. And where else better to start than the man himself, Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, an astonishing hat-trick against Spain uh, in Portugal's opening game, the three-all draw. Um, are there any good notes from Ronaldo in that game? Well, I mean, we've been waiting a long time for Ronaldo to have a World Cup match that you know lives in the memory. Um, coming into this tournament, I mean, I think everyone knows he'd, he'd never scored a free kick before in a, in a tournament, um, and he'd only scored three goals. So in one match, he basically doubled his World Cup tally and finally scored a free kick. And what a way to do it, and what a time of the game to do it as well. So, um, you know, he, he looks like he's turned up, and with two games in the group stage against supposedly weaker teams... Um, and then a knockout stage, presumably, assuming Portugal get through. You know, Ronaldo it looks like a, he's you know in the hunt for the golden boot, which I'm sure will delight him. Yeah, and he he really hit this World Cup with form because after Christmas in La Liga he was exceptional, and all season in the Champions League as well. A lot of people wrote him off because he's he is getting older now. Well, yeah, he's the oldest player to ever score a hat trick in the World Cup. Um, it's not something. It's not a young man's game scoring yeah. three goals. Thirty three years, one hundred and thirty days old he was, which was actually a bit of a surprise. It's it's in league terms that's not that old. You see a lot of players playing at that age, but to score a hat trick, I suppose not many people do that in the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, thirty three, big age for. Jesus, I guess, and also Ronaldo, <laughs> and they both they both stamp their mark on the game. He's done a lot more at thirty three years old than I have at thirty one. So, yeah, you he's got done two all years, right. Mate, you got two years. I have so. maybe Euro twenty twenty two. I could put a free kick in the top bins. You're quite good at darts, so that. that <laughs> I've seen your free kicks, Matt. <laughs> well, don't rule it out. <laughs> so yeah, as Duncan alluded to, he scored three goals in the opening game. That's as many as he scored in previous World Cup finals. In fact. Between 2006 and 2014, he attempted 70 shots, scoring three goals, and he only needed four shots to equal that tally at 2018. It was the 51st career hat-trick for Cristiano Ronaldo, which coincidentally was also the 51st hat-trick scored in World Cup history, so a nice bit of symmetry there for you. Um, and also, yeah, it was his 45th attempt from a free kick, his first ever free kick goal at a tournament. What was interesting, I think, it'd be good to get Tom's perspective on this, but if you look at the free kick Ronaldo scored, he hit it in a kind of semi-traditional way. He hit it, it was sort of side-footed. And, you know, when you think back to Ronaldo, particularly at Manchester United, he kind of, he perfected that kind of, you know, almost toe punt on the valve thing. That yeah, it was, it was very unlike Ronaldo that we've seen lately. It was normally... He takes a few attempts to even get one on target or over the, over the wall that actually on target. So it was it was quite unusual. You could tell that he was gunning for that hat trick. You could tell that it was mm. it was in his mind that he was going to score. But yeah, yeah he, should, he was fired up by what had happened prior to that game in terms of a suspended prison sentence from Spain. <laughs> so I'm sure, yeah, there was a little bit of a naughtiness there from Spain before the game. I'm sure there wasn't coincidence that that was announced before the game. Um, but yeah, normally it was it this knuckleball style yeah, free yeah. kicks, but he didn't quite do that, and the pressure really was on for Ronaldo in that game. You could tell on his face; he was genuinely really going, believing that he was going to score that. It was, yeah. There was just something in him that you could tell. Normally, I'm um, no, it's going over or it's going to hit the wall. But I mean, to be fair, Ronaldo, I suspect he always thinks everything he ever hits is going to go in. <laughs> yeah, often it does. But in yeah, life. yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it was. It was the sort of performance everyone was hoping for, and I guess it contrasted quite a lot with um, with Messi's against Iceland. Yeah, just before we move on to Lionel Messi, it was quite interesting. That free kick that Ronaldo attempted was actually his 74th shot at a World Cup Finals, and that is now the joint highest since we've analysed games in 1966 onwards, 
with Brazilian Ronaldo. Unfortunately for the Portuguese version, he scored nine goals fewer than Ronaldo, so he scored six, and Brazilian Ronaldo, the best striker we've seen uh, for Brazil at World Cup Finals, has 15 goals. So a man who did not have as much luck as Ronaldo in the opening match day, unfortunately for him, was Lionel Messi, who attempted 11 shots without scoring in Argentina's one-all draw with Iceland. A kind of surprise that many people didn't expect. I know Iceland worked really hard um, and very well organised, but I think most people expected Argentina had enough quality to really win that game. Yeah, least, least possession throughout the whole tournament. Well, match day one so far. Um, I Personally, I thought it was more... Argentina being very average and Iceland being better than they were than we thought they were going to be, but um, they, got mean, the, they got the job done, didn't they? Was... Yeah, I mean it was Iceland basically carrying on from Euro twenty sixteen, which a few people wondered whether they could or not. And I think I saw someone tweet um, watching the Argentina Iceland game, um, talking about Argentina, saying, "Is this how the world saw England in two thousand and six? In the sense that you look at the team sheet and it looks amazing, but then you see them play together and it." It all looked a bit disjointed. A team of stars rather than a star team. Yeah, so. exactly. And I think the Thomas' point about possession, you know, Argentina had 78% possession, which is pretty monstrous. Um, and actually, if you look at the four highest possession rates in the first round of group games, you had Argentina on 78, Morocco on 68, Spain on 67, and Germany on 66, and none of those teams won. So, you know, eight years on from the World Cup where Spain won by dominating the ball and not scoring very many goals... Um, we, you know, possession is is less kind of, uh, you know, less popular now, or le- it's less important, I guess, to the way teams set up, um, and that's something we've seen in the club game in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think we kind of saw Argentina panic a little bit. They realised that after Messi had missed his penalty, that the game was slipping away from them, and they were attempting shots from quite far out, pretty ridiculous. They were, yeah, I've got distances. here nine from outside the box, 27 in total, eight inside the area. But but what I've got here is the most touches in round one in the opposition's box with 46. That's that's a hell of a lot of touches for for a team that... Yeah, and they didn't, even, they didn't even have Harry Maguire in the team. <laughs> exactly. He dominates yeah. the box. So yeah, as we as I alluded to earlier, Lionel Messi, he attempted 11 shots in that game. That's the most he's ever attempted in a World Cup game and he still couldn't score. Um, A lot of people might be thinking that's a bit unusual for Messi having that many shots and not scoring. But actually, that happened at club level back in December 2017 uh, for Barcelona against Deportivo. And he didn't score in that game as well. So he has previous. And I think, obviously, you don't get much better chance to score than a penalty. And that, you know, that is the real blot on on his copybook. And... You know, Messi takes a lot of penalties, but he's he is bad at penalties. Yeah, right? he is, the, yeah. the only good penalty I can remember Messi taking is the one when he just rolled it to Suarez. <laughs> Maybe he should have done that because you know I think he's now missed <laughs> four of his last seven um, that he's taken for Barcelona and Argentina, and for for arguably the greatest ever player in football history, he is really bad at penalties, yeah. and he does only get the chance because the he's easiest skill in a, even I could score. Well, you reckon you've never missed a penalty? I don't so. reckon. I know. I know. Well, well, everyone knows. It's a it's a big I, thing around the hitch. I work with with provable data, so I can't you know I can't back that claim up. But um, it is funny that it's strange, I guess, that Messi can't score penalties. Yeah. So. Actually, since we Opta have recorded full um, event data for the World Cup since 1966, only Luigi Riva of Italy has attempted more shots in a World Cup game without scoring than Messi did in that match. And actually, Riva did it twice in one tournament. So you think Messi's got it bad, 
Reeve had 13 shots against Sweden and 13 shots against Israel in 1970, and he didn't score in either of those games. So there's actually a few good numbers around another player in the Argentina game, Javier Maserano. Tom, you've got some numbers on that. Yep. He attempted the most passes throughout match day one. Um, he, he completed 133 of these, which is just insane. That's that, It's actually that, a World Cup record. That is just... Okay. It just shows how key he was to, to Argentina's build-up. So it wasn't all about Lionel Messi, despite him not scoring with 11 shots. There's another player that actually stood out in that game, and Javier Maserano. Tom, you've got some numbers on him, haven't you? Yeah, key to Argentina's build-up in the game. Um, 141 attempted passes, 133 completed. Um, sure, World Cup records. Yeah, up to date, huh? yeah. And he passed to no player more than Lionel Messi. 23 of these passes went to him, which just shows there was a conscious, conscious effort to get, get the ball into... Um, Messi, who was receiving it just outside the penalty area. Um, so I know your role in the team. It was, Win yeah. the ball back, pass it to the man that can actually do something, or in this case, can't do something. <laughs> yeah, I, I found it very unusual because there was acres of space out on the right with Salvio playing right back, and the ball was just so slow getting from one side of the pitch to the other. It was just the build-up was become too predictable, and, and obviously going through Mascarano every time, obviously playing that, that deep role, it it, it should have got out to the right-hand side quicker because Salvio, is, he's naturally a winger. I think credit to Iceland there for making it so compact and they're very well organised. Of course, yeah, no doubt about side. it. Yeah, they, they, they knew what their game plan was, stuck to it, got the job done and they've, they've come out of it with a point. Great so. point, yeah. Mm. So we move on to Sunday now where reigning World Cup champions Germany surprisingly lost their opening game 1-0 to Mexico. And in fact, it was the only time they've lost their opening game since 1982 when they lost against Algeria. And in that year, they went on to reach the final. Yeah, this is the third World Cup in a row where the reigning champions haven't won their opening match. Italy drew with Paraguay in 2010 and obviously Spain lost 5-1 famously against the Netherlands last time out. And obviously Spain, when they won it in 2010, lost their opening game and went on to win the World Cup. That's the only time that's happened. So... It isn't a disaster for Germany. You still expect them to, to get through, but it is. I think what it is, that sort of result, it, it kind of brings to the surface the uh, any tensions in the team and any kind of weaknesses. And I think there's been a lot of um, a lot of navel gazing in Germany and you know concern about what this says for the tournament as a as a whole. Really. I think the difference between the Germany team now and that Spain team in 2010 is that. They only scored eight goals in their seven games throughout that tournament. So they were based on defensive strength and sort of organisation, really. And I don't think Germany have that in their locker. I think they're more of, they're going to get more goals. Yeah, than and you. Spain in 2010 was all about their midfield controlling games. Whereas Germany, this Germany, you know, the, the biggest complaint from Germans after the match was that they didn't have a midfield. And mm. it's something you've seen quite a lot in in this World Cup. There's not, there haven't been many games where the mid, two midfields have engaged. It tends to be kind of you have an attack, we'll have an attack. Um, and you know, you kind of think of great German teams as having very controlled midfields, and and so far this one doesn't look like it does. And that Mexican team were very intense, very busy, um, and I don't think Germany really coped with the swarms of players going around, like basically pressing their team. Uh, they weren't. I can't say they weren't expecting that because they obviously would have done their research. But Mexico really did catch them on, uh, with a surprise on that day. And one thing we said in the preview pod ahead of the World Cup was that we don't feel that Germany really have that striker that can put the ball in the back of the net when it matters, maybe, and maybe almost suggesting that 
in games that are tight like this, they don't have someone who can get him out of jail every time like yeah, they used to. Well, Bills, after the England game on Monday night, basically lamented that Harry Kane wasn't German. I don't know if they're going to try some sort of swoop for Kane <laughs> mid-tournament. But, you know, they, they recognise that having a striker like Harry Kane, you know, proper poacher, is something that they don't have at the moment. I mean, Thomas Muller used to do that role and, and you know, but isn't really getting that uh, chance as a, as a centre-forward. Um, but even when he did score up goals, he never kind of he never convinced as that sort of player. Um, I mean, missing top... Miroslav closer? Can they call him back? <laughs> Get him back. Well, they had Mario Gomez. Gomez no, I was going to say Gomez come on, and obviously he's he's more than capable to do that. But I think they had an issue getting it to the striker's feet or or Gomez's head. It was he had a few good chances, and I thought that he might have scored some. But Timo Werner, he's had a great season at Leipzig. Had a, He's, he's up and coming and obviously he's a, a prospect that they really like out there. It's just a, a fact of not being able to get him the ball in areas where he, he does his business. It's interesting you say that because we actually have some numbers that suggest that is the case. So they actually tw- they attempted 26 shots in this game without scoring. Um, a bit of background to that is that's the most in a World Cup game without a goal since 1974 when they had 30 against East Germany when they played as West Germany. And the average shot quality using expected goals in this game was only 0.05. So that's about a 5% chance on average of scoring that chance. Um, only Egypt and Saudi Arabia had a lower chance quality on average in that match day. So they had a lot of shots, but the quality of those shots was really poor. Yeah, absolutely. And you compare that to England uh, against Tunisia, who had you know eight fewer shots than Germany, but the their expected goals uh, value at the end of the match was double that of Germany. So, um, and anyone who watched those two games, I mean, you know, that is essentially what advanced analytics are trying to do is kind of put a number around stuff people can see from watching games. And you can watch a Germany game, and you can watch England game, and you can say, yeah, Germany had a lot of the ball, had a lot of shots, but never really looked threatening. Whereas England, you know, they created, you know, really good chances um, pretty much throughout their game. Yeah, because normally, like, before XG, we would have said, I've had 26 shots, they should be winning that game. They're all over them. But the 26 shots, the XG quality of that was 1.4. So you'd be thinking about one goal, probably, from those 26 shots. Well, yeah, there was, wasn't there a Premier League game last season? Huddersfield had, like, 30 shots. Huddersfield Swansea, yeah. And their XG was really low because they were just terrible shots. I think Olivier Giroud that day had a higher XG by yeah. himself than Huddersfield did in the entire game. So that's what XG is really good for. It's kind of, you know, it's looking beyond the, the raw numbers and kind of applying a bit of uh, quality rating to it. I think the the last minute change of Jonas Hector obviously not playing and Pladden Hart coming in, that was, I don't know whether they were expecting it in the camp or because... We obviously had a cold, so not too sure whether they knew he wasn't going to play until today and just seeing how it was going. But he didn't really get into it, Pladen Hart on the left. Um, Kimmich obviously done his normal job bombing up and down the right-hand side. But there was a few disappointing performances in there for me. Kadira, who normally controls the game, normally pretty instrumental to their build-up play. He wasn't, didn't look like his normal self. I'm not too sure what was what was up or whether it, whether whether it was just a... Well. Yeah, it might have had a card. Got the same thing, but maybe just a bad day at the office. And obviously, they're world champions for a reason. Hopefully, they. I know they were chasing the game, uh, trying to get that goal to equalise. But there were so many gaps at the back in the last fifteen. Yeah, yeah, so Mexico could have had three or four. Really, I I think I seen an interview with Lofa Mateus where he was just saying there was a few players that literally just let the side down. Uh, Yeah, as you say, they were chasing the game at the end, but there were so many spaces at the back. They only had about one or two players at the back at all times. It was just. It was ridiculous. It's going to be interesting to see how they recover in the group games. Now. I think Germany very similar to England as well in the sense that they have a very critical media, and mm. you know they have a lot of ex-pros like Matthias who um, 
you know, always ready to jump in and, and stick the boot in. So, it's, you know, how will the team react to that? And, you know, they're a very experienced team. They're the reigning world champions. So you'd expect them to, to do okay. But, you know, we've seen a lot of reigning champions go out of the World Cups recently, you know. So it could yeah. happen again. I think well, you made a good point, Matt. Total shots, 26, which, which was second on match day one. And as you say, England had eight less shots but only one less on target. That's that's yeah, a ridiculous yeah. shot conversion. I think well, England, we'll move on to England a bit later, but I, they didn't seem to panic as much as Germany did yeah. maybe. I know they weren't losing. They were drawing at the time, so it wouldn't be the end of the world. But Germany, yeah, a lot of shots from distance and just not Welcome back Neuer, by the way. Yeah, welcome back. Yeah, he's hardly played this season in the league, but <laughs> yeah, comes back in, so... And lost. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we, before we move on from this game, we'll talk about Mexico a little bit. Um, obviously, we probably should start with Rafa Marquez. Um, so, Tom, you've got some numbers on Rafa Marquez. Yeah, Rafael Marquez appearing in his fifth World Cup. That's incredible achievement. Equaling the record held by Antonio Carbajal of Mexico and Lofa Mateus from Germany, obviously already mentioned. What a player, what a player. Yeah, no, you kind of need, Mexico needed that experience and steady head at that time, I guess. That's exactly and what he, he brought to the pitch, it. didn't he? Yeah. So, yeah, another Mexican in that game, Herving Lozano. We, again, we tipped him to be a big name in this World Cup for Mexico in our preview pod. Um, and in this game, he scored the winning goal. It was his first shot on target at World Cup Finals, and he scored it. And in the qualifiers, he scored with four of his five shots on target. So kind of suggested that that could be happening. It's pretty clinical in front of goal. Uh, yeah, Lozano, what a player for PSV this season. He's, he's been incredible. A few guys haven't seen the player profiles already. OptiPro have, have put together five player profiles that released just before the World Cup that are on OptiPro's website and OptiPro's Twitter. I yeah, uh, definitely suggest uh, looking at those if you can. So another team that failed to win on match day one and were expected to really were Brazil. They failed to win the opening match at the World Cup for the first time since 1978 when they drew one all with Sweden back then. They'd won nine in a row between 1982 and 2014 but could only draw one all with Switzerland on Sunday. Yeah, this game was all about Neymar. You know, is he back? Was he fit? Um, he might have been fit at the start of the game but <laughs> Switzerland possibly made sure he wasn't by the end of the game. They, I mean, you know... I think one of the great things about World Cups historically is um, the mismatch between rugged teams and rugged players and, and sort of superstars. We've seen, you know, we saw Maradona get fouled 152 times in his World Cup career, which is pretty hefty. Um, and Neymar got the same treatment in this game. He was fouled 10 times, which is the most by any player since, strangely, Alan Shearer, um, who <laughs> was fouled 11 times by Tunisia. Similar players. Yeah, very similar players. Um but yeah, Neymar, I mean, 10 fouls won is equal to what Pele suffered in 1966. <laughs> and that's famously when Pele was um, kicked out of the tournament in the vert commas. Um, admittedly, I'm sure there were plenty of fouls on Pele in 66 that weren't given. Um, but it does, just, you know, it does illustrate how much uh, Neymar was told. I would have quite liked to have seen VAR in 1966. How would that have been? Well, V would have been impressive. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Neymar... Was I well? You've got a Watford fan in here, and you've got a West Ham fan in here, and neither of us are going to say anything bad about Valen Barami. He was in—I mean, Neymar was in Valen Barami's pocket all game, um, <laughs> and Barami did not give him an inch of space. And yeah, some of those were fouls, but I mean, he did a good job on him in general. And I think that's probably how teams have got to look at playing as Neymar. Um, you've got to make it difficult for him and get in his face, really, haven't you? I think Switzerland were very compact. They—they they, again, like Iceland, they—they they knew what what the opposition were going to bring and 
and had a game plan and stuck to it well and and conquered it. Uh, as you say, uh, it's it's difficult for a team to break eleven players down behind the ball, and obviously trying to gain some momentum when you're being fouled every two minutes. But what, but what do people expect Spitzen to do? Like, yeah, no, they're not going to no, outplay right, Brazil. Yeah, yeah. So they've got to come up with a plan that's going to stop them playing. And a, a, a point in the group stage against Brazil, in the opening game, as I said before, they, they'd won their opening group game nine World Cups in a row. Like, what a result for Switzerland. I think, a, a personal opinion, but I think the teams, the stuff we've seen already in the group stages, it's more the, the lesser teams having a game plan and doing well rather than the bigger teams actually not being able but, to... Uh, yeah, I think this is very much a trend of World Cups as well because obviously international teams get less time to prepare than club teams. It's a lot less choreographed. Um, you know, if you're a lesser team, you know that your chance to progress, particularly in a, in a you know knockout tournament with a group stage with only three games, is just don't make mistakes. You know, don't lose the first game. If you're playing a, a big team, just, just try and hold them. And that's what we've seen. And it, you know, it is effective because if you think about it, your Messi's, your Neymar's, they're not surrounded by the players they normally are. Every, everyone in that team is looking for them to do something, so it's a lot easier for the opposition to, to counteract that. Yeah, and it, I mean, we've got to give credit to Switzerland. With that result, Switzerland have actually only lost one of their last 23 games. They've won 16 of those. Um, they, that, that defeat was a 2-0 defeat to Portugal in qualifying in October 2017. So, I mean, as I said, they're not a weak side. Um, but yeah, Brazil... Actually, on, on the plus side for Brazil, Coutinho's goal was, was really good. Um, yeah, I mean, what you want from a World Cup in some respects is Brazil Brazil scoring long-range goals. They scored 37 from outside the box which is uh, since 1966, which is 11 more than any other team. And, you know, you close your eyes and think of Brazil and it is long-range goals. I yeah, guess. there's two things that go hand-in-hand. It's, well, three things. It's Brazil outside the box goals and Philip Coutinho. All three of those, are, yeah, merge Stir together. that into a pot and you get good You get a 1-0 lead against Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> I would be interested to see how Brazil fare in this World Cup because as we've, we've already talked about the, the strength they have in their squad, the individuals that can change a game like Coutinho did. And just looking at the players that didn't even go to the World Cup, like Alexandro, for example, um, it's... It's incredible. The Fernandinho, who starts week in, week out for City, was on the bench. It's they've they've just got game changers, haven't they? Do they rely too heavily on Neymar? Have they learned the lesson from twenty fourteen? If they do, they shouldn't. I think it almost is the reverse. They Neymar was trying to do too much in that game. Every time he got the ball, he was doing step overs and little flicks and stuff. Where you know maybe four years ago they did rely on him, but now they've got as Tom says, they've got loads and loads of other potential match winners and possibly. You know, Neymar's taking too much on himself. He's doing a what I always call a Steven Gerrard v Chelsea, you know, after he slipped in that game. Gerrard then had like eight or nine shots, you know, increasingly desperate to make amends for his mistake. Yeah. But sometimes as a as a star player, you have to kind of, you know, remember you're in a team and, and spread it about. Or a Lionel Messi against Iceland. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So that means Brazil have actually failed to win any of their last three World Cup games. They've drawn one of those and lost two. That's their worst winless run in a World Cup since June 1978 when they went four games without a win. So they quite possibly could equal that in the next game. So we move on to England now, who scraped a 2-1 win against Tunisia in an opening game. Scraped might be not so kind because they did have the better of the game. They were the better team and should have had about six penalties. Um, Interestingly, coming into this game... 
when the lineups were announced, we worked out that it was the ninth successive World Cup tournament that England's starting 11 in their opening game had never all previously started an England game together before. So it's quite surprising. Not many people expect that. The but. David Moyes special, as it's known, the man yeah. who named a unique 11 in all of his games as Manchester United manager. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, Southgate's got a system and the players know what they, they have to do. And I think what was different, I did a thing earlier in the week where I split England's performance up into 15-minute sections. And, you know, you look at, you get six of those in a game, obviously, and there's only really two bits of the game where England sort of tailed off, and that was kind of the middle uh, 15 minutes in both halves. Um, and I think, you know, England just started really well. I mean, the one criticism is that they missed a lot of good chances. You know, they created more what up to define as a big chance, or a clear-cut goal-scoring opportunity. They uh, created more of those in that game than any other team did in the first round of group games. Um, so if they can improve their, uh, you know, clinicalness uh, up front, then I think they should be fine. But I think we'd prefer it that way round, wouldn't we? That they're creating the chances and hopefully the next game they can start converting some of those rather than what we've previously seen. I think we saw it in the second group game of the last... Um, it was actually in the Euros, sorry, the third group game against Slovakia where we created pretty much nothing in a yeah. nil-nil draw and there was a bit of a worry there. It was like, OK, can we actually get goals in this team? Yeah, I mean, opening 15 minutes, England had five shots with a combined expected goals value of almost one. So, that, I mean, that is massive for 15 minutes. And then they did almost the same in the 15 minutes before half-time. And, it, you know, it really was a dominant performance with a couple of classic England-style defensive lapses. Um, but, you know, the, what they do have is Harry Kane. And, you know, he possibly going into a tournament with a striker, you know, maybe Shearer in 98 was the last time I had a striker as, as feared around the world. Because um, after the game, Gazzetta della Sport described Kane as the best pure striker in the world, which, you know, he probably is. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he's now scored 15 goals in 25 appearances for England. The last player to score more in their opening 25 games for England was Gary Lineker, who had 20 from 25 games. Um, another Spurs player impressed in that game? Yeah, Kieran Trippier, who Opta kind of spotted as a good player when he was at Burnley. Now, he was he was basically the most creative player in the Championship a few years back. Um and he's then transposed that to the Premier League and now he's done it to the World Cup. I mean, uh, after the first set of Greek games, he had six uh, goal-scoring chances, which was as many as Messi and David Silva combined. Now, you know, I know England were playing Tunisia, but I don't think many people expected that. It was more than any other player as well in yeah. the World Cup. So. I thought he was fantastic throughout the game. Kieran Trippier, one of our best players. Um, we I also have here... Harry Maguire creating three chances as well. How yeah. many times did he bomb forward on in, in well, the well, half space? Defender to complete the most dribbles this season in the Premier League. So he's got previous there. Well, he I, I actually looked at his touch map um, after the game and it, it's basically identical to John Barnes' touch, hmm. map, touch map against Ireland in England's first game in 1990. Yeah, now, I did see that. One of those is a left winger <laughs> and one of those is a central defender. And it just kind of shows... Um, I mean, I obviously... Maguire has license to go forward in the system England play, but it does show how how dominant uh, England were. I'd quite like to see Harry Maguire rap uh, if we were to get a World Cup song. Once we win the World Cup this year, obviously that's going to happen. We could maybe release one. Harry Maguire could do a rap, and I'd quite like to see how he how he fits that in. Him and maybe. Milner. Yeah. So actually, as we say, we, we, there's a really encouraging performance for England, even more so when you consider their starting eleven had a cumulative total of 248 caps between them which is actually the lowest in an England starting eleven in an international tournament since June 1962. So it was a really inexperienced team. It's something fresh that we're really sort of 
it seems like the country's really getting behind them now as well. So yeah, I th- I th- everyone loves Southgate as well, don't they? At the moment, obviously after the career he's had with England and and he's he's been fantastic, and you can tell on the sideline how overjoyed he was with the second goal. There was a bit of pressure on him, and yeah. and you could tell. I think have you seen the video where he mouse? Where's Kane? And then yeah, he's, he he's obviously headed it in, and that was brilliant. Um, I thought I was quite interested to see whether we would play Carl Walker at centre back, and obviously we did. Obviously, another interesting fact was how we was moving him to the centre of the back three when we were in possession. Mm. I, I thought it was quite unusual, but but because we see Harry Maguire on the left-hand side, obviously driving forward. I'd like to have seen Kyle Walker do the same thing from the right-hand side. We see John Stones do it a few times, and he put in one really good cross. Arguably, Kyle Walker's probably the best wing-back in Europe, if not the world, at the moment. Right wing-back anyway. Yeah. And it's a shame that he's had to move centrally. At he least is. we have quite a good replacement. Yeah, I was going to say, we had Kieran Trippier, who obviously, as I say, I think he was one of our best players on, on, on the night. Um, is there a weakness on the other side, do you think? Fullback with a right side, a right footed player. That's on the, the only left. thing. Obviously, if I'm playing against Ashley Young, I know every time he's gonna, well, more times than not, he's gonna cut in, cut in on that right foot and try and swing in across. I thought he could have put in a few more crosses. Yeah, the Tunisia defender was giving him a bit of space, and I thought, oh, yep, yeah, go and put it in. We've obviously got Harry Kane in the box, and I think I looked up a few times, and we've got three players on the edge of the area, which yeah. is quite unusual. So I don't, I don't know what the game plan was there, but no, I think encouraging performance. Second half we dipped a little bit. Um, Credit to Tunisia again, and a performance that obviously had a game plan. They were solid. One yeah, of... it was similar to Switzerland. They did what they had to do. I guess they they felt that they had a, their key player missing. Um, sorry, I can't remember his name, but they had a key player missing, and it was kind of like they they won all. They were never. They thought we've done well here. Take a point, and I wouldn't say they deserved it, but it wouldn't have been like it wouldn't have been completely undeserved for Tunisia because they did have a game plan they stopped England playing especially in that period in the middle of the game like Duncan said where we kind of looked like we were going back to the old England running out of ideas a little bit yeah but I think what was key there was the last 15 minutes England's passing accuracy was 92% so they they, they really didn't go right we've got to get gold and start slinging it into the box and that really was refreshing now they didn't just bring on Vardy and Rashford obviously they did bring on Rashford and he, he, he made an impact but they didn't change the system, and you know it was so good to see an England team not just going right. Let's just stick everyone up front and see what happens. Um, the biggest disappointment for me about Tunisia was that they didn't use all three goalkeepers in the game because it <laughs> came, came very close, and that would have been possibly the greatest World Cup moment I, ever. I tweeted how good Moes Hassan started, and then obviously got injured. So I was like, oh no. Um, so but, Harry Kane was actually the first player to score against two different goalkeepers in a World Cup game since Diego Forlan against South Africa in 2010. So quite a niche stat there. And oh, since 1966, <laughs> only eight players have done that in a World Cup game. I was just smiling at you there because that is very niche. Imagine if we got a hat-trick against three different goalkeepers. That would... I mean, that I'd, would have been I'd a first. That would have been a Give the World Cup to us now. But yeah, another encouraging thing actually was Harry Kane not on corners, which was good to see. Um, and both of our goals came from corners through Harry Kane. So it shows why <laughs> probably he shouldn't be taking corners. I thought another encouraging one was how many times we weren't just settling for shots outside the box. We were trying to work it into the box. I think it was. It's it was, almost like they know about XG. We've seen our shot. I've seen the shot chart earlier, and there was about five shots just coming from right in front of the penalty spot. So it was quite. We did. We did have like as you say in that first fifteen minutes, we peppered the goal with shots, and some of them didn't end up with shots either. There was one where John Stones, I think, completely miskicked it after it rebounded. You had um, obviously the one where. Um, 
Deli Ali nipped in at the start and the keeper made a really smart save as well. Lingard hitting the post when it sort of rolled through to him. Lingard missing a great chance after a great cross from Ashley Young. We haven't talked about VAR in this game either, have we? And penalties, yeah. I mean, so we're going to move on to penalties soon. So we'll, we'll sort of oh. merge into that now, actually, in that VAR has been a discussion point in this tournament. And overall, I, I was very anti-VAR before this World Cup and I believe it's actually worked quite well. It seems to, with the penalties like especially. It. Do you not? No. What I hadn't really given it much thought before this World Cup, and now I, I accept that it's working okay. You know, it's obviously it's given teams penalties and results that they probably wouldn't um, have had in the old system. And, you know, with the fact that we went through the entire first set of games without a nil-nil, first time since 2002 that had happened, um, probably shows that it, you know, it has definitely had an impact. But I just find it a little bit clinical. And, you know, the idea of a ref running off the pitch and it... Just to know, it feels it feels a bit like gladiators or something. So that's my issue with VAR is I think it's a great concept. I think it's it's worked well in the tournament on times where it has been used, but there has been times where it's not been used where it should have been. used. I think that's the problem. Everyone's a bit unclear on it. They, they we've been told that referees have an earpiece through to the video referees who are watching every incident. If that's the case, why were was was the ref not notified? Well, he must have seen, he saw Kane go down twice. Yeah, Why yeah. was he not notified? You want to look at that? Come over and have a look at and make a decision for yourself. Um, so that's the inconsistency there. But I, I feel like in game, the only thing that lets us down is when a team breaks. You kind of have to wait until yeah. the ball goes out. But if a team breaks, I think South Korea. Well, South Korea, was yeah, it? Like they were going to score, didn't they? Like football's built on rivalry and injustice. You know, the reason England and Argentina have got such a rivalry in some respects is you know the hand of God and things. Like, I mean. You know, if if football becomes so sanitised because there's no more mistakes, I just think it becomes a little bit, you know, generic. But the whole thing is VAR, it's not a black and white issue, and you're asking to rule on something that isn't a black and white issue. It's kind of the referee still has to have his opinion at the end of the day of what is a penalty and what isn't a penalty. So, But then, exactly, so in a sense, you know, there'll be referees who fully embrace the concept... And there'll be some refs who don't like it, but they can't say that. But then they're probably going to be less likely to kind of listen to the guy in the earpiece. So, you know, I mean, I, it's not going anywhere, but I, I yeah, I'm not... A if a referee doesn't that. like it, I suggest whilst doing the VAR, they take a glance at the camera and do like a Tim from the office face. So <laughs> yeah. What do you expect from here? I'm very, I'm enjoying them in their full kit in the office as well. That's brilliant. All five of them in full yeah. kit. Um, I know, are they? Are they? At, they're not in the ground, are they? So I'm, it's not like no, they can I be called they're upon they're at any time. Yes. So they're not called. They can't be like called up. Say, oh, the full official's gone down injured. We need someone from the video They've room to come got out. Clear desk policy as well, haven't they? It's no coffee cups on the on the table. It's yeah. Astros or boots? Do you think? I reckon boots. Oof. I reckon slip, they've even they got Astro Turf as well. Yeah, they might slip in there. Brogues, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> School shoes and socks. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for VAR. I was very anti-VAR like you, Matt. But it's it's working well. We just I would like to see the referees in the office being able to make a decision. I don't think it should be down to the guy on the pitch, or the referee on the pitch, to go over to a screen to have a look. I'm happy for them. They're qualified referees. I'm happy for them to make the final decision. Yes, referee, it's a penalty. You're, sure, you're allowed to award it. He has a decision on everything else in that game that the video refs can't. Like I, I was surprised that they didn't go to VAR or they had obviously checked it on the Christian Pavon penalty in the Argentina game. I, I thought yeah. it was Stonewall and they didn't. Because they did earlier they, in that game yeah. for the Messi penalty. The so they obviously missed, checked yeah. it because they apparently they check every every incident. Yeah. So. Well, I think what might be interesting, I don't know if this is the case or not, but obviously those video referees might be aware 
of chat around the game during the match. So, you know, they might suddenly discover that one team feels like it's got a massive sense of injustice and their fans are going mad. Does that then influence their decision? Do they think, well, we need to kind of even this up a bit? I, you know, but with VAR in this tournament, correct me if I'm wrong, the only decisions we've had on it so far are based on penalties. We haven't had anything like controversial where there's a bit of tugging. There was uh, a couple. In, there was the Croatia one where he um, the hand went in the yeah. face, and you know, it, it, oh, and Diego Costa, I suppose, against Portugal. There was there was talk there. They did check VAR, but they saw nothing wrong. So in the opening round of group games, we've actually seen nine penalties given already. Uh, that's three more than in the opening round of group games in 2014. So there has been a bit of a difference there. But it's not a massive difference, really, three penalties. You couldn't put that all down to VAR. And obviously the tenth was uh, last night against uh, Russia with Mohamed Salah. Scored. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for differences, I guess, things like long-range goals, that really... I mean, if you look back at the first round of group games in 2010 with the the infamous um, ball in that tournament... Jabialani. Yeah, there was only one long-range goal in the first round of, of uh, group games, whereas there's been, there were seven this time around. Mm. So. And there's been more direct free-kick goals scored in the opening 15 games of this World Cup. There's been four scored so far, with Colombia's uh, the fourth. And there were only three in the entire 2014 World Cup. Yeah, and I think the fourth was uh, Quintero's for Colombia against Japan, which was a lovely free-kick. I'm, yeah. Surpri- Under the yeah, I'm surprised this isn't tried. Like, don't get me wrong, it's, it's, a, it's a hard skill to master, and obviously you're, you're hoping that everyone in the wall jumps and... It trickled in, and keeper obviously tried to overrule VAR when it was goal line technology. But it has to hit the back of the net to go in. <laughs> Apparently so. Um, I know brilliant free kick from Quintero. We've I mean, had. I know Phil Neville said on the analysis that they shouldn't have jumped so high; should maybe only jump five inches, so that if the ball doesn't fully you, commit, you, yeah. I don't, know, I don't know anyone that can maybe judge. You know, I'll jump, I'll jump five inches, but not six. Well, or if you have a four-man wall, two stay, two jump. Maybe do like that, like a jagged sort of ball. That's a new... <laughs> like Bucks Fizz. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Tom, as someone who works with, with professional clubs, I mean, you must know how much, um, you know, work goes into set-piece routines. And I guess, you know, when the Colombian uh, team will be really, really pleased that came off, I imagine. Yeah, a lot of... The majority of clubs that we work with have either set-piece analysts who, who part of their day job is is to analyze opposing set pieces what what positions are they taking up do they go short or is there a, is there a trend to to what they do um i'm to be honest i'm not too sure how much work goes in on the training ground in terms of um f- things like the quintero maybe it was just off off the cuff there's a fantastic free kick and already seeing four free kicks in this tournament is is like i'd like to think that the colombian set piece coach <laughs> celebrated with the other coaches with his finger to his lips like I told you that was going to happen I knew it was going to happen and yeah like the, like the players on the pitch would maybe so yeah we've only seen one red card so far um, that came in the 15th game of the tournament which was Carlos Sanchez uh, former Aston Villa midfielder the longest we've waited for one at World Cup since 1986 I believe mm, and it was <laughs> it was a penalty and it, it did hit his hand or his arm even was it a red card I, I'm not so sure. It was kind. Of, it felt a bit harsh uh, for me. I, personally, I think it's got to be just keeper was wasn't in the goal. It's it's denying a goal scoring opportunity. But I, it was more reactionary than yeah. I think. But it 
if it was going to be given as a handball, then he's got to go for me. Yeah, we stayed on the pitch for another two minutes after me. <laughs> yeah, he, he tried was, to. He was just like, please, just look at me. Yeah, we were almost three minutes between the, the foul, the handball, and the penalty being taken. And that, that meant that Ronaldo's penalty in the opening game against Spain, or their opening game against Spain, was still the quickest. It wouldn't have been. <laughs> but maybe Sanchez had a bet on pre-tournament saying Ronaldo would score the quickest penalty in a World Cup. He's settled on that, and he's making sure yeah. that would be the case. So in the opening match day of group games, 21 of the 38 goals were scored from set pieces. That's 55%, higher than in any World Cup since 1966. In fact, in the last World Cup, only 29% of goals were scored from set pieces. So are we seeing a different trend here? Are people utilising set pieces a bit more, or is it just something that will average itself out over I think we're seeing the same trend because England's are scoring from set pieces, same as in 1966. So we're going to win the World Cup. Well, we do have a wardrobe in the box in Harry Maguire. That's and as, is, as wide as he is tall, so it's pretty hard to mark him. <laughs> it's coming home. Should it's coming home. <laughs> I think this goes back to the you know the point about um, international football is now more functional than club football. You know, it's it's about doing what you need to do to win the match rather than kind of having a philosophy like your, your Guardiola's or Klopp's or whatever. So it's, it's kind of... Um, you know, it, teams do what they need to do. And I think set pieces are obviously really key. So earlier on in the podcast, Duncan set you his quiz question for you to answer during the podcast. And have you come up with that answer? We don't know, but Duncan will reveal to you now. Yeah, so the question was, record number of fouls in a World Cup game from 66 onwards uh, was between Mexico and Paraguay in 1986. Um, the ball was in play in that game. I mean, perhaps this makes sense because of the so many fouls, but the ball was in play for 41 minutes and 46 seconds. Um, like Stoke Watford in the Premier League last season. Yeah, but, but I mean, not that bad, obviously. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the I watched this game because I was like, this seems ridiculous. And the whole match is on, on YouTube, and I urge you to go and watch it because it is just the most stop-start thing. Every time the ball goes in the air, the referee uh, stops the game. George Courtney, the Englishman. Um so, the total number of fouls in 41 minutes and 46 of open play is 78. 78 fouls. And you think most Premier League games will have between... A foul every 30 seconds of in-ball play. <laughs> yeah. Most Premier League games will have between, you know, 15 and, and 25 fouls. So, it's just monstrous. Um, and anyone who goes on about, oh, football was better in the old days, show them this game and say, I'm not sure about So, Tom, thanks for joining us on your debut on the Only Stat That Matters. Um, so, do you want to tell us a little bit more about where we can find out more about OptiPro? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Um, yeah, so follow the OptiPro Twitter, which is at OptiPro, and also our website, OptiSportsPro.com. Uh, we've got a few blogs that have gone up recently. I touched on the player profiles. Um, we've got a new one, Daniele from Italy, has um, profiled using uh, Opta sequences and possessions feed. Um, just looking at fullbacks and the different type of fullbacks in Serie A from last season, which is very interesting. Yeah, and obviously the the free at the back podcast that's that's released. Um, you'll find more information on, on the sites, but it's it's definitely worth giving it a listen. Brilliant. And Dunks, thanks for coming on the podcast again. Anything you're looking forward to uh, for the rest of the group stage at the World Cup? Just more of the same, really. I think it's been the first set of games are really good. Um, you know, we get. We're, already at the stage where, you know, some teams are playing for their entire World Cup future, including some big names like Germany. So, yeah, let's just uh, let's enjoy it because, let's be honest, in a, in a week or so, the group stage is over and there's only 25% of the tournament left. Very sad. 
Um, so thanks for listening to this episode of The Only Stat That Matters again. Um, we, we'd like to hear your feedback. If you can really give us feedback on Twitter, on at Opta Joe. Um, obviously, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, we'll be posting links to that on our Twitter feed very soon. Um, we'll be joining you at the end of the group stage next. Um, to recap the whole group stage, we will be welcoming back Tom Warville for that, um, looking over the numbers and looking at advanced data metrics. So something to look forward to. So thanks for listening and see you soon.